This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Chances are you know someone. You have very close knowledge within your family, within your friends, within your workplace, who has suffered from Alzheimer's or dementia or whose parent has or someone it, it, it is tied in so so web-like throughout our entire social structure. And it's something that people are doing research on each and every day to try and deal with, to try and find more answers for. And the programs and services that are in place are pretty amazing right now, but those programs and services, they uh, they certainly they cost money. And we're going to talk right now about an effort that is being made by, it will be four individuals, Carol, Wendy, Charlie, and Ian. And they are looking to raise a little money, but this is not, they're not going to be knocking on your door. You're not going to see them at an event in London. They've decided to do something pretty remarkable. Joining us in studio is Carol Walters, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. Joining us as well by phone is Wendy Thompson, who is an Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex board member and principal with Right Brain Teams. Carol, maybe you can just enlighten us on on what you've decided to do. I'm I'm sure it's big, but oh, it, it wouldn't be that big, would it? Well, it is. It is quite big for anything that uh, any of us on the team have ever done. So, so both Wendy and I have had a parent um, with with Alzheimer's disease or dementia, and my grandmother also had Alzheimer's disease. And and we were talking, and we wanted to acknowledge them in some way that was big and challenging. And and you know, I've had in the back of my mind about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, and I know Wendy's thought of this in the past, and we thought. Hey, why not do this? And why not do this acknowledging all the families that are on the dementia journey in London and Middlesex? Uh, we certainly know that our our mountain journey does not compare at all to the de- the dementia journey and the challenges associated with that. But we felt this is something we could do that that was big and challenging for us that that acknowledged all of those that are currently on the journey and while doing that, raise some money for programs and services here in London and Middlesex. How amazing is that? So no, this is this is really really big. You're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. We are. You mentioned you had this in the back of your mind. Can you take us back to the moment when it arrived in the back of your mind? Well, I, I had a daughter who did an internship in Africa. And when we were thinking of going to visit her, we thought, you know, but we're going all the way to Africa. What can we do there? So so talked to a few friends. And I had one who had done Kilimanjaro and said, surely you and your husband, you and Charlie can climb Kilimanjaro. Give that a try. So, so we didn't end up doing it then. But I've been thinking about it ever since. And it's kind of one of those bucket list things. While I'm still young and healthy enough to do it, I figured, OK, it's probably the time. Carol Walters joining us, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. Wendy Thompson is with us as well. Okay, Wendy, take us back to the conversation when you and Carol decided to to give this the green light. 
Yes. So as um, Carol mentioned, both of our parents, you know, um, have lived with dementia and, and that's been a real challenge as a caregiver. And so we thought, you know, what is it that we could do that would have meaning? And both of us, you know, love adventure and, you know, love anything that would push the limits. And we figured, you know what, let's, if we're going to do it, let's do it big. And we figured Kilimanjaro was certainly you know, big enough and, and one that we would like to tackle just in honoring both of our moms. So, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a big adventure and, and I'm confident um, that we'll do it. And it has lots of meaning with the Alzheimer's, um, you know, brand behind it. We can tell you it's called Killy Kicking Dementia. And if somebody wanted more information, where could they find more information about it, Carol? Yeah, so we have a fundraising website. It's at bit.ly, so B-I-T dot L-Y backslash Killy Kicking Dementia, all one word. And in, on there, you'll, you'll get a lot of information about what we're doing. Okay. Now, it's not just the two of you, because it would be one thing for Carol and for Wendy to go off, and they're going to do this very soon. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you're going to bring not just some supporters, some fellow climbers with mm-hmm. you. Carol, your spouses are going to go. When? Uh, how did you bring this up? Maybe is a better question <laughs> than when did you bring this up? How did you bring that up? <laughs> well, that's a good question. <laughs> when I when we brought it up, certainly um, our our spouses were really supportive and and supportive of what Wendy and I do for the Alzheimer's Society. But I, I remember my husband's comment was, "Do you think I could take my?" TV up. <laughs> Does that still count? <laughs> yeah. yeah, unfortunately, no ATVs on Mount Kilimanjaro, so we've had to train for this one. What, Wendy, has the training been like? Because you're going to leave next Thursday. You're going to be on the mountain on October the 19th. So that's in now, I hate to say the number, but eight days from now. So what have you had to do to get ready for this, Wendy? Yeah, so we've had um, lots of training. Namely, we have um, taken the local um, mountain in London. So Carol and I have gone up to Boulder Mountain on a regular basis and have gone up and down the hills, as well as moving our body in some shape or form every day, be it with tennis or, or just for a light walk. But I think the most onerous um, the training that we've had to do is climbing the mountains at Bowler. And initially, Carol and I were pretty out of breath, but we're now feeling a lot more confident as we've uh, certainly gotten better shape. Well, when we look at care costs, we've heard this so many times that it, it it's not something that is easily manageable. The idea is that we could see the number of people needing care double within 15 years. Care costs would be at $16.5 billion. Carol, this is, this is something that affects a family in, in such a, a definitive way. Can you talk about some of the things that need to be in place for someone when they are diagnosed with a dementia? Now, we always uh, um, encourage people as soon as they are diagnosed with dementia to come to the Alzheimer's Society. So we do have a lot of um, programs there, social work support, education to learn about the disease and to learn about the journey um, that they've now a part of. We have support groups to create new social circles and support for individuals on the journey, social recreation programs to engage people in in uh, that have dementia in a meaningful, purposeful way. And we also 
also have a public education group that is out there educating the public on what they can be doing to to help um, manage the risk factors associated with dementia. Uh, within London and Middlesex now, we, we are up to about 8,500 in- individuals diagnosed, and we know the number is so much higher because there's a lot of people that don't seek diagno- diagnosis right away. Um, and you take that number and you can double it or triple it if you think of the number of people impacted because our care partners that are associated with, um, that are on the journey with the person with dementia are also significantly impacted. We are talking with Carol Walters, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex in studio. Wendy Thompson's joining us as well. Wendy is the principal with Right Brain Teams and is a board member with the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. We're talking about Killy Kicking Dementia. They're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and they've set a goal of $10,000, a dollar for every two feet of ascent. So, Wendy, what is climbing the mountain like? I'm, I'm guessing that you have to go through a, at least a, a little bit of a training course or or look at a map. What does it entail? Yeah, it is, um, you know, we're certainly looking forward to the first couple days because they certainly aren't going to be as challenging as when we get to um, the summit. So the first, you know, um, two or three days we'll be looking at walking probably anywhere from four to eight hours. But then the kicker comes, and no pun intended, of course, is when we actually get to the summit on day six. And we'll be getting up at, you know, about 1 o'clock in the morning. So, of course, it's going to be pitch black. It will be incredibly cold. It's going to be Arctic-like weather with, you know, they're, they're telling us to pick our, you know, pack our ski goggles and belly clavas. And for the summit, we actually will be climbing anywhere from 10 to 12 days. So the beauty is we get to see the sun, um, you know, come up and as well as the sunset. So, you know, I think that will be pretty special. But it, it's, uh, there's certainly, and I think the biggest challenge, of course, that we've heard and the research that we've done is the altitude is really what can be the kicker. So, um, you know, I think physically and then, of course, mentally. And, you know, Carol's a great partner, as are um, Ian and Charlie. So we're feeling pretty confident about it. And there's just some things that are going to be out of our control. And uh, just, you know, it's that uh, the adrenaline, I'm certain, will be kicking in once that we get to the uh, to the summit. 5,895 meters. Carol, are there YouTube videos of people having done this? Have you, have you <laughs> kind of checked it out? A lot of times in life, no matter what it is you're doing, from driving to a mall in Chicago, you can find a YouTube video of someone who's done that. And you think, oh, that, that's what it's like. Is there anything like that for Mount Kilimanjaro? There is. Have you watched any of them? Uh, unfortunately, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suggested my husband not to watch. So, so uh, it, it was very informative, um, and it did certainly heighten some of the risks that we have to be prepared for and and what to expect. So, so it was informative that way. But I'm certainly after I watch, I'm thinking, oh wow. This is this is big. <laughs> well, it is big, but at the same time, it's raising a lot of awareness and hopefully raising a lot of money to help out with some of the services that are needed for people who are suffering from dementia, for people who make use of the Alzheimer's Society of London and Middlesex. Wendy, can you tell us a little bit about Right Brain Teams? 
sure. So it is the um, organization that um, um, I'm the owner and operator of. And what we do is we go in and we work with organizations and um, do team and leadership development. And the Right Brain Teams is basically looking at the right side of the hemisphere of the brain and looking at the softer skills that we often don't focus on. That And those soft skills are usually quite hard. It looks at emotional and social intelligence and, you know, looking at having courageous conversations. So unlike the left side of the brain that is more logical and, you know, more comfortable for many of us, the right brain is, is um, you know, tapping into a different skill set that many leaders need to be effective. Well, with an aging population, we know that the numbers and projections make this incredibly important. Congratulations to the two of you for having the courage to even think this up. Congratulations to your spouses for uh, agreeing to go along. Uh, one final thing, Carol, take us through the, the path. You'll leave on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Where do you arrive and, and how do you kind of get the ball rolling on this climb? Yeah, so we uh, we leave Toronto, uh, fly out of Pearson on Thursday. We'll arrive uh, approximately uh, 20 hours later in Kilimanjaro at their international airport. Uh, there's a little bit of stops along the way, but uh, we'll arrive there and we have our, our lead climber um, will be picking us up at the airport, taking us to our hotel, going through all of our climbing gear, making sure we have everything we need, and then um, wishing us well until the next morning pick us up bright and early and we'll we'll head to the base of the mountain fantastic well we wish you the best of luck we'll have to talk when you arrive back mm-hmm. home about what the experience was like again anyone who wants more information carol can you give us the the website one more time please yeah it's bit.ly backslash killy kicking dementia all one word Killy Kicking Dementia. So K-I-L-I Kicking Dementia. Wendy, Carol, again, thank you for what you are doing right now and all the best in the flight and the climb to come. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Wendy Thompson and Carol Walters from the Alzheimer's Society of London in Middlesex. And Wendy is with Right Brain Teams. We, of course, have... The, for lack of a better description, casino moving out of Western Fair and a new casino will be put up in southwest London. The question became at that point, okay, then then what happens at Western Fair? That's a big tenant. Well, you got to credit Western Fair. They're not going to sit around. So they have looked to create the Grove. Well, the Grove is something that is... Thousands and thousands of square feet, and it can be turned into business space. And that business space can range from a small space to a much larger space. And yesterday, we had an announcement at Western Fair. Big news that included Nick Spina from Live Fit Foods. And here's just a a little bit of that announcement. With the next exciting member of the Grove, Live Fit Foods, represented by their CEO, Mr. Nick Spina. Thanks, Reg. I'm going to tell you the short story of how Live Fit started and where we are going. It all began back in July of 2015. I was working a crazy amount of hours with my previous venture. 
I had no time to cook healthy meals for myself. Eating healthy is a priority for me. I actually ended up getting takeout at a local restaurant almost twice a day. Salmon rice and broccoli. I'll never forget it. It got pretty unsustainable for me. I needed to find a better solution to my problem. I thought of hiring my own personal chef to cook my meals for me. I couldn't find anything on Google, but I knew there must be busy people just like myself looking for a solution to the same problem. This is when the real light bulb went off. I pulled up my pen and paper and started drafting up the first plan for LiveFit. The idea was to deliver fresh, chef-cooked meals that fit your lifestyle directly to your doorstep. I figured if we sold high volumes of food, we would get volume discounts from suppliers. If this idea was to come to life, I would need to hire a good chef. My friend, Chef Matthew, was the first person to come to mind. He was working as the head chef at a local restaurant when I reached out to him with my crazy idea. He loved the idea so much that he left his position to work at LiveFit. After getting the green light from Chef Matthew, I dubbed my parents' living room as their first office and rented out a friend's restaurant kitchen when they weren't open to cook our food in. After securing a rental kitchen, building a website, a mobile app, and basically stealing my parents' living room, we were officially open for business. Amazing story. Please welcome to London Live, Nick Spina from Lift Food Foods. Nick, you're not still operating out of your parents' living room, are you? No, no. Those are, uh, those are some days for sure. <laughs> now you get to move to a space at Western Fair. Take us through kind of the, the living room to where you're going to be setting up in the Grove. What has happened in that period of time? Oh, wow. Uh, a lot. That's for sure. You know, it's, uh, you know, been a lot of, you know, as any business, uh, you know, there's lots of ups and downs, uh, you know, to find ways to overcome those barriers and, uh, move on forward and, and grow the company. So, yeah, we started really in my parents' living room and, you know, kind of uh, grew, grew up from there and, you know, acquired our first small space, and that was only a 1,000 square feet. And then, uh, you know, just kept connecting with people and the orders just kept on coming in. And, you know, we got another space that was 5,000 square feet and, you know, 50 staff and 50 to 60 to 70. And, you know, we're all the way up to 120 staff now. And, uh we're hiring another 200 uh, over the next seven months and opening the new facility at the Grove, uh, which will be about 30,000 square feet, and we'll have the ability to produce over 11 million meals. That, those numbers, do, do they sound staggering to you, or are you kind of used to it having dealt with them day by day? You know, it's funny. It's I get used to it. But everything's very surreal. So it, it's, you know, when I, when I take the time to slow down and really think about it, it's, it really is insane, you know, to think about 11 million meals and delivering that to households across the country is, is unbelievable. And the fact that you're able to do it here is fantastic. Thank you for that. But the whole thing is, this is something that you could have set up somewhere else you could have gone to a different city you could have gone to a different location even within this city as we look at what western fair is trying to do with the grove as we look about the the shuffle that is taking place with the casino moving elsewhere and there being added space what was it about that that was appealing to you well you know what we met with a lot of people uh you know a lot of different options around the table and we thought about going to toronto and uh you know london's my home i was born and raised here in london 
and uh, it doesn't feel right moving away from it. And we've built a lot of great connections here, uh, including, you know, the, the Western Fair team. And, you know, our, our uh, vision and goals lined up perfectly with theirs. And, uh, you know, we, we kept continuing the conversation at the Grove. And uh, here we are today. And, you know, we're, we're very excited to uh, announce this to the public that this is really happening. So what is the timeline for you to move into the Grove? So we've already got the keys. Um, our construction will start immediately, and we're planning to be up and operating by January of, of this upcoming year. That's amazing. Yeah, very. We've got five different construction teams, so we'll be working uh, long hours, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, it's nothing unfamiliar from what we've been doing since day one. So We're talking with Nick Spina from Live Fit Foods, moving into, or Live Fit Foods, uh, moving into the Grove. And uh, Nick, as, as one last thing, when you, when you talked about where this began, how often do you think back to that moment? All the time. You know, I'll never forget it. It's uh, all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, to see the support and, uh, that's come, it's, you know, I'm definitely thankful. Uh, for it, and you know, incredibly honored to have the opportunity to uh, you know take this to the next level for on behalf of LiveFit and everybody involved. So it really is incredible. Well, like you say, eleven million customers, eleven million or eleven million meals going to customers across the country. Uh, maybe you'll be across the planet someday. We uh, we hope so because thank you for putting London on the map and staying on the map in London. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Have yourself a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. That is Nick Spina from Live Fit Foods. And you heard him. That's that's great. He could have gone anywhere. Could have gone to Toronto. Could have gone anywhere with this and said, no, London's my home. I'm going to do it here. And he enjoys what he sees at Western Fair. So when one door closes, another one opens. Is that the way we look at it? We've got a little bit of a shuffle going on in the city. But that's that's nice to see that... Over Western Fair, we've still got ways to make the space a great use. And uh, we'll keep following that story. Let's take a break right now. We'll let you know what's still ahead. Imagine, almost like Nick did, thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to do something. In his case, he started Live Fit Food. A move was made by U.S. President Donald Trump this week. And it was a move that was met with maybe some shock, who knows, maybe even within his own office. When you look at the decision to basically, I don't want to say break up the alliance, but but that alliance between the United States and Kurdish forces, Kurdish soldiers, that's that's been a very contentious move. You have the United States providing support to those Kurdish soldiers. You had that support preventing them from having to turn around and, and worry about Turkish forces that were coming toward them. And because of that, they were able to keep ISIS prisoners prisoners. So this had quite the ripple effect. Why it was done, you'd probably have to ask U.S. President Donald Trump. What could this do? Uh, well, Donald Trump has said a lot of things this week. He has said things like, the Kurds didn't help at Normandy. Um, if you look at some of the 
fact-checking that has been done, what has been called out about this. Um, you've had a lot of people saying that, yeah, well, wait a minute, if if this goes back to some sort of Normandy thing, they have shown that, yeah, well, that's that's not entirely accurate that there are and and you know what whether or not there is a historical basis for this doesn't matter what does this mean for the present what does this mean for unwanted isis prisoners in syria because kurdish forces have been making sure that they remain prisoners what does this mean for the area that's another question so this becomes a very difficult thing to watch play out. Let's get a little bit more information on it from someone who's been following the story very closely. Stuart Bell, Global News reporter, joins us right now. Stuart, thanks for taking some time for us. No problem. One of the things in your article described craziness here. When we look at here, where do we pinpoint well, that, that quote was uh, from a Canadian woman who's detained at the Al Howell camp, which is uh, a camp in northeast Syria uh, controlled by the Kurdish forces that houses a large, large number of uh, women and children um, who were captured during the final days of the Islamic State. So let's look at how the change has come. Do we point everything back to U.S. President Donald Trump well, I mean, Turkey has been talking about uh, this kind of invasion and setting up a buffer zone or a safe zone in northern Syria for a long time, but they were never able to. They never wanted to risk um, uh, going in there while the Americans were present and setting up a conflict with them. Um, but, you know, when when uh, President Trump put out that very sudden and bizarre statement on Sunday uh, saying that the U.S. was withdrawing in order to allow a Turkish invasion, uh, the Turks pounced, and they they moved in very quickly. And um, unfortunately, the, uh, the, the conflict has now diverted um, the Kurdish forces away from what they were doing, which was containing ISIS and uh, imprisoning all of the ISIS captives that we don't want back, uh, so they're taking care of them for us. Uh, and now they've been forced to go and defend their northern border as well. So it's a very risky situation we've already had today, um, an ISIS car bombing in Kamishli, the main city in the northeast, and uh, five escapes of ISIS members from a prison uh, that was shelled by the Turkish forces. We're talking with Global News reporter Stuart Bell about what is happening following U.S. President Donald Trump deciding to pull back that support for Kurdish soldiers. And now all of a sudden we have uh, some some pretty tense times and a lot of tensions. And as Stuart has outlined, even some action going on in that area. So if we're to look at, at what U.S. President Donald Trump could have gained for this. Do we know more about that, or has that been illustrated in any way? I, I don't know, and I don't won't even attempt to um, rationalize his decision-making because it's so erratic, frankly. And even since he made the decision on Sunday, he seems to have completely reversed himself and trying to uh, sort of undo, he said his officials trying to undo the statement that he made and warn Turkey not to... Uh, 
you know, to, to move in to the area. So it's, I, I don't know how you predict or, or even analyze the foreign policy decision making with somebody who just doesn't seem to think things through and just makes very sudden announcements like he does. The effect on Canada, how do we describe that? Well, uh, Canada has uh, about, there's about 40 Canadian citizens that were captured during the defeat of ISIS that are imprisoned in camps, uh, in prisons in the Northeast, uh, imprisoned by the Kurdish forces because uh, the Canadian government has not made any efforts to bring them back. Um, and so the their situation is very much uh, in question. Um, there's there were already concerns of um, possible attacks on the camps to break women and men out of those uh, detention facilities, and uh, that's already beginning to occur. Uh, you know, thankfully there hasn't been any large-scale outbreaks, um, but the big concern, of course, is that um, those Canadians and from other countries as well who were part of ISIS but who were captured and who we were relying on the Kurdish forces to detain um, they may go in the wind, and uh, God knows where they may resurface. So a lot of maybe the, the ground that has been gained in containing ISIS, is that the, the thing that is, is most at risk of crumbling in all of this? Yeah, I mean, just remember, it's only been six months since the, the Kurdish forces finally took the last territory from, uh, from ISIS. Uh, not you know not a lot of time. It was only very recently that ISIS occupied all kinds of spots throughout that region. And um, while they don't possess any significant territory right now, they have been continuing to mount uh, sort of guerrilla-style attacks uh, throughout the region. So um, the problem is, you know, this conflict with Turkey risks taking uh, the um, pressure off ISIS allowing them to regroup and reconstitute. And we saw um, only a couple of years ago how quickly they were able to spread and gain territory throughout Syria and Iraq. And uh, that's something that nobody wants. It's a, it's a major global security issue for every country that suffered uh, through ISIS attacks, Paris and elsewhere in Canada as well. So, you know, that's, that's a huge concern at this moment. Global News reporter Stuart Bell with us. Finally, Stuart, in following the story, what are you watching next? Well, I guess the degree to which uh, the international community pressures Turkey to uh, to slow down or to stop their advance, and also the degree to which ISIS is going to exploit this chaos to uh, to mount more attacks and try to free people from the prisons. Um, those are the two things that uh you know that we're gonna have to watch in the days ahead thanks so much for covering the story thank you so much for sharing some time with us thank you take care that's Stuart bell global news reporter so already a car bombing already threats of trying to free people that as Stuart says would then just go into the wind six months ago you have the kurdish forces taking control of of the final isis stronghold and then all of a sudden this. And where does it go back to? As Stuart pointed, you know, how do you decide on the rationale of Donald Trump? 
it's difficult to know where the rationale is coming from. I guarantee it's not just waking up in the morning and saying, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to pull back that support for the Kurdish forces just because. He's not spinning a wheel. There's something behind this. Now, is it advantageous to anybody? I don't know. Is it advantageous to him? There are irrational decisions made. You got to wonder, where does this lead? Where, who's helping to pull the strings in this? Because nothing like this is done just to do it. Ah, let's just have some fun. Let's just, let's just see, you know, ISIS has been kind of contained for the, a little while. Eh, I'd like to have more fun. Let's, let's let them go. That's not the way that it's being worked. No one would do that. As irrational as some people can act, no one's doing that. So where does this come from? What is next? And that's the thing that we'll continue to watch. If you want to read more about it, you can go to globalnews.ca. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.